Hello, my name is Pauline Blanc, and this is Developing Carbon Stories, a podcast about product developers developing the most innovative and impactful carbon projects around the world. Developing Carbon Stories is a project by Abatable, a carbon procurement and intelligence platform that enables companies to purchase high-quality carbon offsets. During each episode, we speak with an entrepreneur from a different part of the carbon ecosystem and talk about their journey so far and how they are acting on climate change. In this episode, we are speaking with Santiago Espinosa de los Monteros Arispuru, CEO and co-founder of Toroto, one of the largest nature-based carbon removal developers in Mexico. Hi, Santiago. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of Developing Carbon Stories. No, thank you, David, for having me in this, in this podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you and, and your audience. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure having you. And um, it'd be great to start off just by hearing about your journey up until this point and um, how you came to be involved in the, in the climate industry. Absolutely. So, I mean, sustainability and, and in general, the fact that the climate crisis has been very present, I think, for our generation uh, since we were children. We might be the first generation where, where that's the case. And I really always knew that I would be working on something related just at first. I studied renewable energy engineering. I thought my, my contributions would be in the energy side of things because I said, okay, 60% of global emissions come from energy. I study energy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good theory. It's, it's a good theory, right? It was not a, not a terrible place to start. And actually, I do think the energy space has incredible lessons uh, for us all. It's technical, it's challenging, it's important, it's... it's an economic engine, it's really important to address that. It's just, I then saw that there, there is an incredible amount of bright people already working in the energy space, and that, that ball has started rolling, definitely. The nature ball, on the other hand, the other 40% of, of emissions, so the nature ball is definitely not rolling already. Um, and we sort of started, or I started reading a lot about what were the blockers for us to be able to territorially fight the climate crisis. Um, and in 2019, I had like my quit everything moment, uh, joined my co-founders. Toronto is a family-founded company. So joined, uh, joined my co-founders and started. And how it happened was very a very nice memory. Uh, it was Mother's Day in Mexico. So my gift for my mother was a hike, like a, a trip to the, to the forest. And it was a three-day hike with, with uh, a few stops along the way. Then we also decided to invite my aunt, her sister. And it was really walking through the forest that we were talking about how we wanted to go into the next 15, 20 years of our life as a family, what we wanted to contribute to the world, uh, how frustrated we are at, at the current situation regarding nature loss, degradation, biodiversity loss, and all of these things. And it was really during that walk uh, that we decided that we would do something about it. We sort of decided initial budget, how much we could invest, uh, uh, the kind of business we wanted to have, uh, several things. And this was all yeah. just while you were on the hike. You were just it's straight into the business model, into the investments, all that. Yeah, we've always been, we've always been a business-oriented family. We have a mezcal brand. We have a, an advertising agency. Toronto is by far our our largest and most important endeavor now. But like we've always done done small things as a family. What's the what's the mezcal brand? Would we would we be able to buy it? Well, myself in the Netherlands or uh, I think so. Yes, actually, uh, it's called El Mero Mero. It means the one and only. Uh, and the, the 
the brand is a knife, like a, a hand knife. It's it's yeah. and it's forty eight degrees. It's it's tough. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> So you've got good roots as a family in developing businesses. And, and yeah, we were talking that we wanted our next venture to be purpose-oriented. Uh, and it's the first time that I lead a family venture. Uh, I, I have always been a follower. It's the first time that I lead a family venture. And we did come out of this hike with a lot of intentionality regarding we're going to start a business, right? Mm-hmm. Now, really what the blockers were to, or what the blockers are to actually execute climate action at the territorial level in, in a high quality way, we identified three main things. Number one, broad, in general, in, in the territory, when there are climate action activities such as restoration, reforestation, conservation, these kinds of things, governance is so bad that we can't say that we have permanence. And permanence is the daughter of governance. Uh, more so in the context of the Global South, where 50% of the land belongs to indigenous or agrarian communities, like if these people are not really caught into the market in a just way, it's impossible that they will be having these projects uh, for, for 100 years, right? We also saw that operational scalability at the field level is extremely low. If you, need, if you want to reforest 1,000 hectares, you need to be able to produce 1 million trees locally every year. And to do that, you need a full-time squad gathering seeds. It's a lot of seed. It's tons of seed. It's, it's, it's a lot of things because also you need seeds from trees, different species, but also from, from bushes and also from herbs because you need to restore the three strata and you need to create local capacity building and you need tools and you need pickup trucks and you need a place to stay and you, you need territorial analysis, soil samples like to actually do climate action in a way that you are uh, sort of activating ecological successional processes so that nature can restore itself is extremely difficult. And I, I estimate, I guesstimate that around 97% of the planet is out of reach from an operational hub that can deliver on this infrastructure uh, uh, that is needed to do this, this, that is needed to do these activities. Uh, and number three, we saw that uh, all players in this kind of market are claiming for more transparency. Not only the investors and the demand side of the market, but I'm talking mostly about landowners in the global south who don't understand who is investing in their projects, who is buying those credits, at what price, when, is the developer being honest, is the developer not being honest, uh, what percentage of what an end buyer pays is actually going to the landowner's pocket. Like all these kinds of things uh, are not, this is not information to which landowners have, have access currently. And we thought, okay, I mean, they own the projects, so it really doesn't make sense. That, that this is the case. Um, so we decided to start a company. Uh, it was a, a six-month process of sort of re-engineering my brain uh, out of energy and into, into nature, mm-hmm. reading forestry engineering kinds of books, biology kinds of books, ecological succession kinds of books, territorial analysis kinds of books. And you, had you done any of this before or did you just do a six-month crash course? Um, it was a six-month uh, self-imposed crash course. Like really, I had no cell phone for these six months. No WhatsApp, no social media, no nothing. <laughs> I went out of Mexico City with books because normally forestry engineering, they study for four years and I only had six months worth of savings to, to do it, right? So <laughs> I needed to get all of that information into, into my head. Um, and then we did think 
where we did observe that we were going to start on the carbon removal side of things. So we trained and trained and trained to, to do carbon-oriented restoration and carbon-oriented conservation and these kinds of things. But then one day, we got a call from Grupo Modelo. They are the makers of Corona beer, and they belong to AB InBev, right? the, global, the global beer maker. They produce one in every four beers that are produced globally. It's amazing. They have one in every four on the planet. 25% market share. They have Anheuser Busch, Stella, Corona, Bavaria, Quilmes, like all of these brands that are, that are the brands that people drink. Uh, they make them. And we got a call from them and they said, Santiago, we need Toronto to help us out with an aquifer recharge, a watershed recharge program. And I said, What? I mean, I don't even know how to do carbon. There's absolutely no way we can do this. And they said, Okay, okay, okay. Don't say no. Everyone is saying, no, we're going to send you the technical details and you tell us if this is something you can help us with. I said, okay, unlikely, but okay. And then I realized when I saw the technical plan for this project, it's a, it was about doing ecological restoration. It was about doing reforestation. It was about doing a, a soil control and soil conservation and these kinds of things. So I realized that the correct territorial management of, of any ecosystem provides several ecosystem services. We're very used to talking about carbon, but in this case, water infiltration into the watersheds is also an ecosystem service that is a consequence of these activities. Yeah. And that was our first project. Uh, they remain one of our largest clients so far. Uh, so I'm very happy that Otto sort of launched with a different ecosystem service than carbon, because today we, we, we still have the water practice, and that brings in like 60% of our revenue. We've got an additional traction with Ebimbev, Coca-Cola, now about to close a contract with another top five global food, beverage, food and beverage company. Uh, and then, yes, we started developing carbon activities as well, which now amounts to around 40% of our revenue, uh, something like that. And we're also able to model uh, biological corridors. So all of the uh, interventions that we do on the field are, are guided by either how can we infiltrate more water or how can we enhance biological corridors. And then, yes, sometimes the monetization strategy is carbon. Uh, just to finish with the introduction, Toronto is now, uh, we have a, a technical team of 50 people working at the cabinet level uh, full-time, biologists, forestry engineers, geographic information systems experts, these kinds of things. And then we also have a team on the field that is never less than 50 people, but up to 250 people working at the field level at any given moment out of six biological stations that each activate climate action uh, or potential for climate activities in up to 300,000 uh, hectares, more or less. Wow, and that was only just in the space of 2019. That's, that's amazing. I mean, just going back to your, your first project, so when, when you know, such a big player comes out and, and talks to you and says, you know, we, we want to do this environmental restoration project, what, what's their angle? What, what are they actually looking to get? I mean, are they the owner of the land and they want to see this natural space restored um, for biological, uh, like biodiversity value or? What's the thing? Yeah, very, very interesting question. In this case, what they needed is they, they have a brewery, and this brewery takes water from the watershed to make beer at a, at a reason of some liters of water per liter of beer, right? Yeah. And the local government told them, hey, you need to do a program to re-infiltrate at least 1.3 million cubic meters of water from rainfall every year into the watershed. It's very simple. When it rains, only three things can, can happen with a drop of rain. It can evaporate, 
it can slide into the center of the valley and, and go away from the watershed and go away from the basin, or it can infiltrate. So the scope of this work was to stop uh, uh, water from getting away from the watershed, which also provokes erosion, uh, and infiltrating into it. And the unit here is they needed 1.3 million cubic meters of additional and permanent water infiltration every year. So it's like removals, right? It's, it's like uh, when you're thinking carbon, it's, it's like removals, yeah. but water oriented. Water capture. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really familiar for me because I mean, my background in Australia, like we have a, I mean, similar climate in some parts to, to parts of Mexico in that it's a bit dry. And so, you know, we, we have a really significant dry period of the year and then, and then we can often get large rainfall events in, in one big go. And so we have a very similar problem of water infiltration. So when we get water, it's a lot at once. And so we have massive erosion issues and massive issues with uh, water retention within the landscape. So it'd be fascinating to hear about uh, what actual interventions you used to, to ensure this. Is this about um, you know slowing down streams and, and rivers, or was there a lot of earthworks, or how did you go about it? It's a lot of things. That's a great question. Um, I think we would divide our interventions in, in three layers. So it's either we are in the highest part of the micro basin, we are in the in the mid part of the micro basin, or, or we are in the valley, right in the in the low part of the micro basin. Yeah. In the highest parts of the microbasin, we're focused on revegetation, either doing reforestation with native species or dispersing seeds that we collect locally, because that's what nature does actually. Nature moves seeds from one place to another, not trees. <laughs> so we also disperse tons of seeds in the highest part of the microbasin, because that's where erosion starts, and that's where we need to stop sediment from being eroded into, into the lower parts of the basin. Then on the mid area of the micro basin, we do what we call soil conservation works, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. So what they do is they, they uh, reduce the speed at which water is flowing into the valley uh, to make sure that it is infiltrated and it doesn't escape the, the, the basin where we're working. So we're talking dams, gabion dams, accommodated stone barriers on, on, uh, depending on the, on the slope, uh, it can also be in trenches, it can also be, so anything that will stop water from flowing down uh, and will make it infiltrate. And then on the lower area of the, of the basin, this is some of the most complicated work actually, we do a lot of desilting daily because we have so much sediment already in the, in the lower areas of the micro basin that water bodies are dying, they lost depth and then they are drying out and so they lose their communication to the watershed and this is catastrophic. So we literally remove the sediment from watersheds and we use it because it's so rich. We use it, uh, we give it to the, to, the, to the farmers, to the agricultural uh, people who are doing agricultural activities. Uh, and the, it actually enriches their land for three to five years. So we remove it from the water bodies and use it for agricultural purposes. So this is the general project. Fertilizer or something, is it? Or is Sorry? That, is it almost like a fertilizer, the way that they use it? Absolutely, it's very rich. It's very, very rich. It, it, it brings tons of things. It brings, uh, it's moist. Uh, it also brings tons of nutrients that have been washed down from the, from the hills. So it's very rich. Uh, it, it will enrich their crops for three to five years after, after we, we've used it. So it's a basin-wide kind of, kind of management. And it's hard because you need local germoplasm, you need uh, local capabilities, you need local people. Actually, at Toronto, there are moments where up to 75% of all of our staff, their job is to restore their land. 
And what's really interesting is this project happened on communally owned land. Uh, actually, 95% of the land around this brewery is owned by communities, agrarian or indigenous communities. So we actually need to be able to come to them and have uh, uh, the agreements so we can do this work on their land. Uh, and we also train and hire these people to make sure they are the ones doing most of the most of the work, capturing most of the value, and getting most of the necessary capacities to continue that into into the future. Yeah, right. Because I guess a lot of your work is forming those agreements with with local communities. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of Mexico is that a lot of the the natural areas are owned communally rather than private hold. Absolutely, fifty one percent of all of Mexico is owned by communities. Yeah, right. And so a lot of your work is is you know interacting with local communities about using their land for these projects. How does you know how does that conversation go when I mean I assume you approach some of these communities yourselves or, or do they do they come to you? How does that process work? Uh, at first we approach them, then they start approaching us. So <laughs> each time we do a new a new territorial hub, we start developing relationships with local landowners, and then and then yes, it's difficult it's governance it's social safeguards it's a lot of the heavy lifting that technical teams are not used to uh, they make decisions in assemblies where up to 400 people are going to be owning one single piece of land and they all need to raise their hand at an assembly so that our project can move forward but then that's also amazing because then that's a project that 400 people said yes to it's very hard to derail that kind of activity which is why we say Permanence is the daughter of governance, right? But it's, it's a lot of work, definitely. Now, uh, Toroto is well known in the in the sort of in the agrarian sector and the community sector. We are well known for producing some of the projects with the highest participation participation share for communities. So, anywhere from sixty percent and up to seventy seven point five percent of the proceeds from a carbon credit or or, or these kinds of activities go to communities, uh, uh, the communities where we are working. And then both Toronto and the landowners have reinvestment agreements. So we will both reinvest anywhere from 20 to 50% of our proceeds into additional climate action in, in the activity areas that produced that money in the first place. So we also have a mechanism that will make sure there is finance to maintain, monitor and do more uh, 30 up to 100 years into into the future. Yeah, well, and so that, I mean, that figure there, that the 67 to, I think it was 75%. 60 to 77.5. I see, yeah. And so that percentage of proceeds going to the local communities, in, in what format is that flowing to them? Is that, um, you know, through through wages and salaries or, or is that through, um, you know, direct investment? How, how does that actually flow towards them? Or is no, that a sharing agreement? That would be their revenue, and they are, they are, uh, it's our best case scenario is it's paid directly by our customer to the community. So, for example, if we, if we work with available and available buys some of our credits to then uh, have one of your clients use them, or retire them, or this kind of thing, mm -hmm. then it would be great if available paid directly to the landowners this, this share that, that it's their share of the project. And then with a reinvestment agreement, we sit together with them once a year and say, okay, we have 10 pesos and there, there, there's this list of activities that need to happen this year because we need to enhance biological corridors, because water infiltration needs to be increased, 
because this is a, there's risk to this forest here, or, or there's an opportunity to restore there, or there's secondary rainforest vegetation that we need to manage. So we come to landowners with sort of the analysis and the assessment of what needs to be done, and then together we agree how it is that we will be spending this reinvestment uh, uh, share each each year. Uh, and then the rest is the rest for Toronto, that's our operate, operational margin, and the rest for the landowners, that's their operational margin. And we, although we think it is amazing, or it would be amazing that they have more uh, opportunities to spend that wisely, to invest it, to sort of create health services locally, educational services locally, this kind of thing, we, we think there needs to be an ecosystem that supports them with that. I'm not entirely sure that Toronto can play a, or should play a role in telling them how to spend their share of their of their of their of the cake. I, I go back and forth in this idea. I would definitely not like them like it if they told us what to do with our share, right? So, yeah, yeah. so when you think about horizontal partnerships, it's it's weird. It it gets complicated. It gets tricky. Yeah, sure. And I guess um, I mean, there's lots of different revenue streams coming into this through, through different activities you can make. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, carbon is you know, what Babel does, but you've also got, yeah, as you mentioned, the water infiltration work and, and, and general environmental restoration. Do you find that these goals, um, often align with the landowners and the local communities that control the land? Um, cause these are coming from, you know, corporate interests. They're saying, look, we want these environmental impacts. Is it often hard to marry those with the interests of the local communities? Uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, mm -hmm. the nuance would be they fully understand and prefer the value of having a healthy ecosystem and a healthy, healthy piece of land, right? This, yeah. They see it. They see it with their own eyes. They say, we had animals and we don't have animals any longer. We were able to live from nature and then now nature is not enough because we've degraded it. Like they, they are very, very clear about, about why it's important to have a healthy ecosystem and they want that now. Their reality is that the market still incentivizes degradation. Uh, it's the, the opportunity cost of conservation is still too high for them. So, for example, even in, in the in the least productive areas in Mexico, they are able to get two hundred and fifty dollars per hectare. So you would need per year, yeah, out of activities that would degrade an ecosystem, right? So like uh, extensive cattle, this kind of thing. The least productive land will do $250 per hectare. Whereas the most productive restoration projects or conservation projects at current prices and current costs, etc., will probably make them anywhere from 50 to $150 per hectare. So not even the most productive carbon uh, or, or ecosystem service oriented projects can compete with the least productive degradation oriented uh, projects in Mexico, right? And this is, this is extremely, this is extremely tricky. So they know what they prefer, which just, they also need to eat. They also need to, to sort of have development. These are people that are not wealthy or, or, um, they, they probably don't know what they will be living from two weeks from now. Uh, and that's extremely tricky to handle for sure. Yeah. Does Toronto play a role, um, in developing perhaps local industry of some kind. I mean, in the context of the example you gave before where, you know, you were, you were doing the water filtration work for the local brewery, well, not really local, global brewery. Um, you know, that would have obviously provided a lot of employment for, for local people, I'm sure. But does Toronto ever 
step in to create employment activities for, for locals? Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, we, we've been discussing a lot what happens with the revenue or, or say the net income that is generated by one of these projects. Now, the operating costs, most of that would be local jobs, definitely. So uh, most of the operating activities are locally trained squads, locally trained uh, biologists, forestry engineers, this kind of thing, who also manage locally sourced squads. Uh, so yes, I would say from each peso that goes through Toto, around between 75 and 80 cents are going to go to field level activities. Mm. And around 60% of that uh, is going to go through local jobs. Yeah, sure. So there's clear benefits then for local people uh, through the projects. It'd be- it's a new kind of economy, right? It's, it's not only about doing the restoration and land management, it's about yeah. very carefully crafting a regenerative economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because the you know the revenue that feeds into these projects comes from you know abstracted spaces like the voluntary carbon market. You know, do, do the local people have like what are their perceptions on things like the global carbon market? You know, do, do they care about these things, or is it is it more just kind of you know this is just something that that we can use to to do the work that we really want to do? You know, I mean, the most surprising sentence that I hear about a lot, and I've heard it from dozens of landowners. I've personally been to 150 to 200 assemblies with with these communities, and there's a constant sentence that I hear at all of these gatherings, and it's, we have been waiting for this for 50 years. (laughs) It's incredible. They fully understand what ecosystem services they provide to the world, they are not going to tell you in terms of carbon, right? But what they're going to tell you is, we've been cleaning the world's air for generations and it's taking us a lot of work to conserve and it's taking us a lot of work to, to, to preserve. And there's hundreds of people that die in Latin America, for example, to preserve these ecosystems, right? It's, it's definitely not only market-oriented people, but this is just such a huge breath of fresh air for them. Uh, it's, it's amazing. The most surprising thing I've heard is that, and I hear it at every assembly. We've been waiting for this for decades. Uh, and that's, that's very, very nice to hear. Very nice to hear. It's great to hear. I mean, I feel like it's, it would go against what I would, uh, I, mean, what I feel like most people would assume. And, um, and I guess it just is a bit of a testament to the fact that there's been such little voice for these actors in places like the voluntary carbon market. They're very much just, uh, you know, a source of supply that feeds into these markets. Absolutely. And that's where everything starts, right? So when I see, actually, we did, a, we did some research in the voluntary carbon market before we started, of course, mm-hmm. and we saw that the status quo is that from 30 to 5% of, the, of what a company pays to, to buy a carbon credit actually ends up in the pocket of a landowner. So, I mean, how can you scale a market like that where value is not going to the field? We don't even have the resources to fight the climate crisis once. (laughs) Uh, How are we going to do it if 60% of the money that is being used to fight the climate crisis territorially is used to to activities that do not add value at the field level? It's crazy. It is, yeah. And I mean, I think even, you know, there are even worse examples than that, you know, that have been uh, around in in recent media articles as well. We shouldn't, I don't think we should name any names in this podcast, but I mean, I think, you know, 30% going to local implementers is, uh, is high in a lot of cases. 
unfortunately. Absolutely, and this is sad. This is really sad. Because the market asks for transparency, traceability, high-quality climate action, removals, restoration, reforestation, local germoplasm, locally created jobs, uh, people hired correctly, no exploitation of local uh, uh, job vulnerabilities, that kind of thing, at $5 a ton. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, we don't see that we're able to execute any kind of high-quality restoration activities funded by carbon for less than $35 a ton. Uh, and that's still making it happen with stuff like seed dispersal and, and, and succession of ecological processes. If you actually want to do high-powered, uh, high-impact restoration, that's $50, $60 a ton, at least. Uh, so there's also sort of a, a, the, the demand side of the market is a very needy, uh, a very needy side of the market that is sometimes not putting enough value on the table for projects to be high quality. Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's very true. I mean, we have an increasing cost of carbon. I mean, an increasing value of carbon credits as the years go on, but I think we're still a long way before the value actually aligns with what the real costs are in terms of what people are asking for. I mean, if people are asking for an abatement of one tonne of carbon dioxide with none of the benefits that you mentioned, yeah, sure, you know, you could make some efficient practices happen in a in a glass factory in China for, you know, a very small amount. But for the, the sort of work that, that Toroto is doing, you know, to be asking for, I mean, do, do you talk to buyers and investors that that give you, like, pretty low-ball estimates on what they want to pay for, for carbon? Absolutely. I mean, I think more at the beginning of our journey, right now we have become more knowledgeable around what we are looking for in a buyer or an investor. So it happens less and less, but yeah, definitely. I mean, 15, we see anywhere lower than $15 is a conversation we, it's hard for us to have because hmm. the kind of activities that we do are hard to fund with that kind of money. So sometimes we see the market sort of outsourcing losses to the supply side. So that the demand side can be profitable, and this is it's complicated to manage. Now, to be honest, David, also we are working with tons of amazing partners that have come up with incredible uh, and very sophisticated mechanisms for us to for us to actually be able to do our work uh, at a high value credit, uh, and we are sure that this is the, the the kind of relationship that we want to scale into the future, right? So. Uh, for example, we, we without mentioning any, any any kind of brand, of course, but uh, we are doing a restoration activity with a partner, and they don't want credits before 2028. Like what they're yeah. financing right now is for us to go restore, go and restore, go and restore, go and restore, go and restore. By 2028, we'll have more sophisticated MRV mechanisms, more remote kind of tools. Uh, it'll be easier the credit will be worth more. So they are being very, very patient for us to actually do the carbon side of things mm. more towards the end of the first cycle of work instead of at the beginning. And we think this is extremely sophisticated because the price is not even fixed yet because yeah. we can estimate how much tons we might remove from the atmosphere as a consequence of these restoration activities, but we won't know until 2020 something. Uh, so the price for this, for this transaction could be as low as $25, but also as high as $40, depending on, on, on how nature actually behaves. We think this is extremely progressive and, and a way to unlock climate activities using the carbon market as a tool, uh, but thinking first about the restoration uh, and thinking first about the activities using, using carbon as a means to that end.
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's great to see more sophisticated and ambitious buyers moving into the space as well. Like we're seeing that a lot with carbon markets in the last year, well, in the last 18 months, especially. I mean, when they, when, um, you know, this partner, and you're welcome to name names if you want, like, you know, if it's a partner that you think does good, you're welcome to, you know, plug them. It's, we like yeah, no, absolutely. Always a super shout out. So I would say uh, uh, this partner in particular, in particular, is, uh, is the project is funded by Mercado Libre. So Latin American Amazon, uh, they're the largest e-commerce in, in Latin America, larger than Amazon in Latin America. Yeah. And the partner through which we were able to structure this transaction is Pachama, who are doing a lot of this interesting uh, uh, sort of money first origination that does provide a lot of value to field level uh, project developers like ourselves, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, for investors out there, you know, are you able to speak a little bit about the the structure of the way the funds go in? Because obviously this is a you know early amount of funds going into a project which will be delivering carbon credits. You know, like you said in twenty twenty eight and and beyond. Are you able to speak a little bit about the structure of that deal and how it works? Absolutely. I probably can't provide any concrete details, but I can tell you that there's two phases, and this is very important, and it's a critical success factor for the project. Mm. Phase number one is uh, pure investments into climate activity. So uh, it's doing the activity costs 10 pesos we get 10 pesos to do it and that's sort of all the first phase of work and, and we call it uh, any carbon that is produced in, in or that is removed from the atmosphere during this phase will not produce any benefits any additional benefits to Toroto uh, and landowners are getting a low baseline rent symbolic rent per hectare during what we call the recovery period. So the client is investing in climate action, investing in the project. Toroto is making a profit out of, out of these activities. So we, we have a margin on what we do. Uh, and then after we deliver a certain amount of tons to the client, then we go into a new phase, which is called uh, uh, the permanence phase. And in the permanence phase, landowners no longer receive a small symbolic rent per hectare of land, but they start receiving 60% of the, of, the, of the market value of the credits that are being produced uh, and the rest is split between uh, the developer, uh, uh, the structure, etc. Right? Um, so yeah, that's the general structure of this deal. I would say the critical success factor is that we have a recovery phase and then a permanent phase. And, and the deal is way, way better for the landowners during the permanent phase, but it's just the project would not be feasible if if 100% of the money at first didn't go into climate activities, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's actually a really interesting way to structure the deal. I mean, this is is this something that you're offering to you know to other investors and buyers when you go out there? Because this, I mean, this seems like absolutely. As we learn more about, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. As we learn more about the the market, uh, and we learn more about what we are being able to do with our partners. I think both our partners and ourselves sort of bring these lessons learned into into our future activities for sure. Uh, it works, right? So if it works, we need to do more of that. Uh, and also, I mean, currently Toroto has signed agreements with sixty one communities, so sixty one projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have everything. We have vanilla, strawberry, chocolate. Uh, there's all kinds of different origination agreements inside that. Sometimes Toroto finances from our proceeds and from our own cash flow when we can, we finance our own project development and then we'll bring credits into the market. It's only a partnership between Toroto and the landowners. Here, that's where the landowners will get 75, 77, 72% of the proceeds because it's only Toroto and the landowners. But then we also have origination. 
And that's when we partner with uh, demand side actors or, or people who are on the demand side for us. Uh, they might be on the supply side for, for someone else, but people who are on the demand side, on the demand side for us, uh, we partner with them to originate projects. And here, what we're looking for is to shorten the capital cycle of a project. So yeah. when a landowner or a project developer is going to do a carbon removal project, uh, it'll take at least 18 months before the credits are, are available. So it's 18 months of investment, which means that if we're able to get partnerships where someone is, is shortening this capital cycle and providing money up front, uh, we think that's extremely valuable. Toronto brings a lot of things to the table, and land, landowners bring a lot of things to the table, but capital is not one of them. That's not what we're best at. And that's not our strongest area. So, so partnering with, with players who, who do have this strength makes a lot of sense for us. We have boots on the ground, scalability, governance, local relationships, technical work, high-level scientific work. This is what we provide to the market. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good news because, because there are a lot of actors out there that do have capital that are looking for, for projects like yours. So shout out to anyone who's, who's looking for a, a good carbon project to invest in. Um, It'd be good uh, to hear a little bit about um, the legislative context in which you work. So in Mexico, um, you know, what, what are the, the legalities like that you work within? Do, do you often find that there's support for the work um, in local and national governments or, or is it sort of separate to what you do? Do you not really engage too much with, with government? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would say our current administration it's not the most environmental or environmentally oriented administration we've had. That said, Mexico has always been leading the pack of, of uh, developing nations from the perspective of international commitments, participation in the Paris process, uh, NDCs, this kind of thing, right? Mexico was the first developing nation to, to put NDCs forward. Uh, we lead the Environmental Integrity Group internationally. Uh, we are very, the government is very much aware and, and, and willing to comply with Article 6 and everything that comes out of that. Now, uh, the government has concerns that we share, actually, mainly around the fact that um, activities in the voluntary carbon market shouldn't bring uh, NDC-related targets outside of the country, right? Like uh, nations in the global south are is where 90% of all nature-based solutions will happen by 2030. So if because of Article 6, uh, the voluntary market means most of these reductions will go into Germany or Netherlands or the US or we, we, where, where lots of these companies are based, then Mexico, the country, says, whoa, I mean, how am I going to, 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 to comply with my own indices or to, to reach my own indices? So, so we do share that concern. We think it's about it. Negotiating further at COPs, we would support this, this, this idea that the MVCs should help developing nations meet their, their MVCs should help developing nations meet their NDCs. Yes. Um, I'm sorry about that. Terrible contact practice. I'm sorry about that. But they're very supportive. Also, they have been very clear that they want communities to make the most out of this. They were angry about information that came out last year, uh, definitely. So, so it's a very socially minded government, for sure. And we are working with them hand to hand about a new rulebook to the voluntary carbon market in Mexico that will provide an additional layer of, of trustworthiness, of, of sort of 
um, yeah, a regulatory base of clear rules that the market can then read, understand, and, and, and participate around that, right? Um, that will probably come out this year. And to, to, as, as, as well as tons of our competitive partners here in Mexico, we're all very engaged in working with the, with the federal government to make sure these rules can help us scale the voluntary carbon market in Mexico. So it's complicated. There's nuances. Uh, but definitely support for Article 6, for sure. Support for the Paris process, for sure. Um, and then it's now about realizing how we can make sure in the voluntary scope of work, um, the market can help South NDCs. Yeah, yeah, how we can find that synergy. I mean, that makes sense. And of course, you know, Toroto, you're looking to expand beyond Mexico, right? You're looking to expand into other countries too. I mean, it'd be good to get a sense of like, you know, where you're looking to expand or, or at least, you know, if you can't talk about that, what you're, what you're looking for in, in a country. Um, outside Absolutely. Um, we are looking to expand in Latin America for sure and already have operations in Colombia. Um, now, in Latin America, you have two kinds of countries from the perspective of land ownership. Either the country underwent an agrarian reform somewhere in the 20th century, or it didn't undergo an agrarian reform somewhere in the 20th century. And if it did, that's the Mexico case, the Colombia case, the Peru case, you will have a huge percentage of the country owned by, by local communities, indigenous or agrarian communities. If you didn't have an agrarian reform, so Argentina, for example, land will be more privately owned and you'll be talking about uh, uh, properties that are millions of hectares large uh, because there was no reform that gave this land back to the people, right? Uh, so we are looking to expand into countries that did have an agrarian reform uh, because this, this provides us with a layer of, of social economic activity to our work. And this also makes sure that uh, the, concept, the economic consequences for activities are atomized uh, into, into a large area of the population and also a, a sector of the population that has been underserved by financial markets so far. Whereas, well, when we work with a private landowner, we do it, it's great, they're amazing as well, we love them, but the social aspect of the project mm. is less evident. Uh, and we think the fight against the climate crisis should be taken as, a, as an opportunity to also rebalance inequality and to also build regenerative economies. And this is done at the community level, for sure. Um, so yeah, we're currently looking to, to further expand into Colombia. Colombia is a country that we're barely starting to understand. Beautiful, mega diverse, uh, with incredible social dynamics, incredible cultural dynamics. Peru, I think, would be next. Central America, so it's extremely interesting for us. Uh, so, sort of Central America, Peru, Colombia, Mexico. If if I die having done that, it would be a privilege. <laughs> I mean, if I died today, it would already be a privilege to 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 have done what we've done so far. But sort of Peru, Colombia, Mexico, Central America is, I mean, a, a dream for us, definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, Toronto 2040, Toronto 2050, Toronto 2100 should be one of the top three players globally, um, creating capacity so that we recover all of the nature that we lost. And it's very likely that that will be impossible, but okay, 80% of the nature that we've lost needs to be recovered or, or on way of being recovered 
by the year 2100, right? So, so that would be the, the long-term vision. I do see Toronto working in West Africa, in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, uh, sort of the global South, uh, broadly speaking. But our focus from now to 2030 definitely would be Latin America. Mm. I, love, I love so many things about what you just said there. I mean, the, the first being that the climate crisis is an opportunity. Um, I think that's that's really reflective of the work you do, uh, and also, um, I was actually my next question was about to see, was about to be where you see Toronto in five years. But I love it how you just skipped ahead to twenty forty to twenty fifty and then twenty hundred, um, and this goal of eighty percent um, restoration in eighty years uh, from now. I feel like it really aligns with the with the thirty percent um, conservation by twenty thirty. You know the, the the global agreement there. So it's. That's actually amazing to hear such um, such ambition. I mean, we need to do it, and then we need a hundred torotos, right? Like that's yeah. that's and how we do it is out of operational hubs, and we call these operational hubs biological stations, uh, from which you can actually activate hectares of high quality climate action. So today we're operating out of six biological stations. By 2030, we might be operating out of 20 to 30 biological stations in Latin America for sure. Yeah. Wow. So you have to watch this space. But it was great. Yes. Lots of work, David. Lots of work to do. <laughs> Lots of work. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's the catch cry of the climate crisis, isn't it? <laughs> but thanks so much for joining. It's been uh, great hearing all about, about what you do at Toroto um, and, and the people you work with as well and, and how you do it. Thanks so much for joining. No, thank you. This conversation was very stimulating. Thanks for the questions. And, and also, very, very, we're very, very grateful that you thought about Toroto for this, this episode of your podcast. Thanks a lot, really. Thanks a lot. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Santiago. 